Hello and welcome to Grafana's Big Tent, a podcast all about the people, community, tools and tech around observability. I'm Matt Ryer and I'm joined today by Matt Tolbach and Tom Wilkie, my partners in crime at Grafana Labs. Hello. 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 So let's start at the beginning then. What is observability? So what can we say about observability that kind of isn't a bit, you know, isn't already been said? Mm. Right. The I think a lot of people, um, you know, in the modern observability market will talk about metrics, logs, and traces, but I just want to like, it is definitely not metrics, logs, and traces. I don't think observability is any one technology or tool. Mm. Is it different than what came before it distinctly? Like is observability as a new term different than monitoring? I think so. Because monitoring was almost always about time series, about metrics, about numbers. And observability is not necessarily about that. I think monitoring is part of it. But you still want to find out like what's going on in your system, right? When when you have a simple program, it's easy because uh, you know it's not doing that much, and it's it's quite obvious to see what's going on. But as systems get bigger um, and they're used by more people and they're more complicated, it creates these new problems, doesn't it? Where we suddenly are hidden a little bit sometimes from what's really happening. So observability has to be something around shedding some light on what's going on inside as well. I mean, when I started, when I started software engineering 15 plus years ago, giving away my age, like, uh, you know, I was writing software that ran on a Windows laptop. You were 10. I was 10, <laughs> yes, damn. So No, I was writing software that ran on a Windows laptop, right? So if I wanted to know what it was doing, I would attach a debugger to it, or I would, yeah. well, that was what I did. Or actually, honestly, I'd just print F. And I think like part of the change here is that, you know, there's a lot of people not writing software that runs on the laptop that's sat in front of them. You know, there's a lot of... A lot of people out there writing software that runs on big fleets of servers sitting in uh, someone else's data center somewhere. So then it makes me think, is it, a, is it who else can know when something goes wrong? So when you were writing your debug code, it was just firing off and you knew when it was broken. Everyone else knew it was broken. So is it, is it about others being able to easily see what was broken and what's not? Well, there's the, there's the kind of systems definition, right, of what observability is, which I don't particularly find helpful. You know, it's, the, it's something along the lines of like the ability to infer the internal state of a system from its external outputs. Mm. Right. And I'm like, oh great. Oh yeah, that's helpful. So now we've answered that question. Should we move on? <laughs> the clinical definition. So personally, like I think that's the that maybe is a useful definition of what makes a system observable, but doesn't necessarily describe what observability itself is. I think I always struggle with the idea too of when do you know that it's happened? When do you know that it's been when when has observability occurred? When have you been observed? <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't, yeah, who knows, right? When are you ever done, right? And I mean, we all know software is never finished. So the, the phrase I have been using now for three or four years to describe what I do, and I think some of what I do is observability, but is like, it's helping people understand the behavior of their applications and infrastructure, right? So my application does things, often things I didn't expect it to do. And, and I would like to understand what those things were and, and, and why they happened, right? And I'm going to need tools, technologies, practices, teams, people to help me do that. And that, for me, that's what, that's what observability is. If we wrote perfect programs, would we need observability? Um, what do you mean if? Don't you already write perfect programs, Matt? I do, but I didn't want to... And Matt's right. here. Is this why, is this why you're asking the question of what observability is? <laughs> exactly. I've never needed it. All my codes just nailed it first time. And, and, and we're done. Matt is the most, uh, most you know, I don't know what I was going to say there. Yeah. Um, another good way to, uh, to write good code is to write unpopular code that nobody uses. It rarely has any bugs in it that anyone reports. <laughs> it never breaks. Yeah. What I spent the first 10 years of my career doing. <laughs> yeah. I've got the best album that no one's ever heard. The, I think um, one of the things, a phrase that I can't remember who, who introduced me to this phrase but I really like the phrase system under observation as well. Mm. Like it really kind of makes it tight about what you're trying to do, right? I'm trying to understand this thing here, right? And so we talk about like systems under observation all the time. Now I'm observing this system. I'm observing Cortex. I'm observing Loki. I'm observing Kubernetes, you know, be very crystal about what it is you're trying to understand the behavior of. Yeah, that's interesting. So th do you have to know up front, do you think, what you want to observe then? You have to like think about this when you're writing a program, even. 
Um, I think there's a lot of, you know, you're, you're ver verging very much into the not what is observability, but how do I do observability, right? Like, mm. like there are, yeah, for sure, there are technologies you need to know up front what, you know, what it is that's going to happen. You know, honestly, like a lot of the technologies that we work with on a day-to-day -day basis need some amount of kind of, uh, you know, pre-declaration of what it is you want to monitor, what it is you want to observe. You know, logs are a great example, right? You know, you have to put the log lines in the code to begin with. Yeah. But there's also a whole bunch of technologies out there that don't. Right, there's a whole bunch of technologies out there that will automatically instrument the things that they think are important. Um, and even like when you think about it, think about a debugger, right? If I attach a, um, you know, a debugger to a process, I've not instrumented that process ahead of time, and I can still go in, set breakpoints, gather, you know, potentially even gather metrics. So, so the answer I think to that question is yes and no. It depends. Mm. Favorite favorite engineer's answer, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the answer to every technical question. Actually, <laughs> you can you're always you'll always win if you say that. The thing I think's interesting about observability is how kind of how fast the the area is moving. If you think about this as a as a set of tools, as a set of practices, then every day there's something new to learn. Every day there's a new technique coming out. Every day there's a new project to learn about, and and that will help in one or or more ways. So does that make it? quite a difficult thing to keep up on then like if it's constantly moving how do people get to grips with what they need to know and about observability yeah i, I you know it's one of those things like um i don't find uh like I don't, I don't find cooking difficult to keep up with even though there's new technologies coming out all the time because it's just something i'm passionate about right it's something i i keep up with naturally and and been excited to to read and learn more about all the time i could see if you're not passionate about development tools and, and, and developer best practices and developer productivity, then maybe this whole topic is a bit, you know, a bit of a snooze fest. I like that cooking analogy a lot because it also, it's like, you know, everything, when you see it all scattered out on the table, you're just like, wait, how does that come together? How does that work? You know, how does this work? And it, and it is something that does feel like a, it, it's cohesive at heart, right? Like this idea of observability is that the, it's the ease in which you could bounce between to me, the ease in which you could bounce between these different things. You say metrics, logs, and traces. You know, I guess I just look at it as different, different granularity of data or different, um, I don't know, like data presented in different ways, right? That's all kind of alongside each other to kind of bop through. And I think the cooking analogy could be stretched even further, right? Because maybe metrics, logs, and traces are the mother sources. Ooh. Yeah. What's the mother source? Uh-oh. Matt, what's the mother source? <laughs> What's the mother sauces? There's four mother sauces. Is that right? I thought there were five. Is there five? Quick Google mother sauces. I think it's five. Yeah, <laughs> but it's, it's it's the base in which all sauces are are on top of. So like a mac and cheese would be uh, what is that? It's Tom. It's it's the one that begins with the B. That's a bechamel, right? Bechamel. Thank you. I was completely spacing. Um, whereas like a tomato sauce, it's like I don't know what it's called. It's like a I don't know my mother sauce. It's called a tomato sauce. I think yeah. It's definitely tomato though. Good name. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or um or hollandaise would be another mother sauce which is like eggs and and and, and fat right like a like a mayonnaise what hold on there's oh, only hollandaise is a mother sorry we're not very good at podcasting we we all have to take it in turns to speak it's okay they'll fix it in the edit can they leave that in though as our first podcast they can also leave that in the edit yeah <laughs> tommy you can just pick who you want to have heard and carry on and they'll figure it out it's really clever oh really you can just ignore me basically oh i like that Tommy, you've gone really low res for some reason on my screen. That was happening to me too. Uh, that's actually, that's just natural. Um, in real life, I've gone pixelated. Oh, you've gone, yeah. Okay, yeah. sort of self-censoring yourself. Let yourself go. He's gone plaid. <laughs> I had a big discussion about whether it's plaid or played. Mm. Is it plaid or played? I don't think plaid. Is it, from where you, is it where you're from? So I thought it was played because of palladium, right? That was the, like, the shortening. And no, it turns out it's definitely plaid because it's a Spaceballs reference. Oh, okay. Where did they get it from? I, I don't know. Isn't it a pattern of material? Yeah. And what does any of this have to do with observability? Don't know. I think, so yeah, this is an interesting, but we're talking about this being an interesting, fast-moving space, a space and, and it being like cooking. Like, you know, there's a lot of, mm. you know, the other thing, you know, once you learn in, in cooking that there's like, you know, the five basic taste flavor things, right? You know, sweet, salty, spicy, umami, sour did i get them right yeah i think i got them right i think so yeah you know honestly like this also starts to think you know well what would be the five basic like tastes of observability mm. so logs metrics and traces then become ingredients into this bigger thing around understanding what's going on in the system what other things are ingredients like or what are the tools 
if we keep sticking with the kitchen analogy, like, do you have like a big spoon? Are there, you know, whisks? Is that, can that <laughs> work? This analogy sucks. Um, <laughs> let's stretch so it even thinner. Um, <laughs> I think you've definitely got best practices. You've got, I like to call them monitoring philosophies, right? Mm. You know, that trying to answer the question of, you know, what should I instrument? What should I monitor? And, and similarly, trying to answer the question of when there is a problem, what should I look at? Right, you've got a very, very large space of things, right? You know, you're, imagine you're one of our applications, right? Cortex is 15 different microservices, each one of them doing their own thing, right? So when something goes wrong, when I get paged in the middle of the night for um, error rates, you know, for breaching our SLO, what do I do next? It's very helpful to have a recipe here for what do I look at? If you look at things like uh, the use method, right? This is saying for every um, resource in your system, Go and look at, systematically, one by one, look at utilization, saturation, and error rate. And effectively, you end up with a checklist, right? And I get paged. I've got a checklist I can go through. And the hope here is that by going through that checklist, I see something abnormal. I see something that I wasn't expecting. And this gives me a clue as to what's broken. How obvious is it to everyone else around you? So you you know that because you instrumented it, right? And you you understand the concept. So then new engineer on call wakes up. Right. How, how obvious is it for the first person? You know, how obvious is it for them? This is the, the beauty of these kind of methodologies, right? These philosophies is that if you identify, if you build dashboards and you, you, you structure your system such that you don't actually have to know what it is you're looking at, but you know what a resource is and you know what utilization, saturation and error rate look like, then hopefully kind of that can make it easier for someone who's not familiar with the system to start to diagnose what might be wrong with it. At the same time, like, you know, I don't think there's necessarily a panacea here. Um, you know, we live in a world where all of the models for how to develop software are, are literally designed to be broken on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, we're always evolving the, the fundamental architectures. And any model that you express in a, in a you know, monitoring system or a config management database will always meet a system that it can't, it can't fully kind of model, right? Um, that's one of my one of my things I'm very keen on, like not not relying on these models of systems to um, to automate like extraction of insight, but instead relying more on heuristics. And um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go as far as saying AI, but like relying on correlation of data between between different systems to to extract that insight. Really, more and more as kind of having engineers form hypotheses and providing you with tools to test those hypotheses. It's just a, I think it's a different way of thinking of things. Hmm. The, you know, we talked a little bit about the use method and how that's helpful. You know, that works when uh, I feel like you're, um, you know, if you're looking at challenges that come from, let's say, like hardware. You know, if, if, if your code is perfect and the reason your service is failing is because the NIC has failed or, or, you know, the network is throwing errors or dropping packets. I think the, in a world of um, microservices, it starts to break down potentially like thinking of a microservice as a resource is, is a bit of a stretch, you know? And so at Google, they had this thing called the four golden signals, which is very much a like for every microservice, you should monitor four things. You should monitor the request rate, the error rate, the, the latency, effectively the, the, the distributions of times it takes to process requests and the saturation of that service. And I, I, I spent a couple of years at Google and, and, and this was part of the stuff they teach you. And then when I left, I just forgot about saturation just forgot. And so we coined this phrase as a kind of play on words against the use method to be the red method, requests, errors, and duration. And this is for every microservice. Make sure you export these three metrics. And, you know, there's a particular style of dashboard where you plot, you know, request rate and error rate on one graph and, and, and latency on another graph. And then you kind of do a, a breadth first traversal of the microservice architecture to lay out each row. And this gives you, you know, one of the things I love is all of the services within, within the company all of the dashboards look like that. So I can dive into any service mm. and start to get an idea for both its architecture and where the errors are being introduced, where the latency is being introduced. Mm. And then, of course, someone reminded me about saturation. I'm like, doesn't fit into this model. Reds. By the way, Tom, I know you invented it, but uh, it's rate error and duration, not request error and duration. Really? Yeah. Thank you for correcting me on that, Matt. I don't know how I would have lived with myself if that had got into the final cut. Do we have a lot of dashboards to update now? <laughs> Well, that's, that's an interesting point then. So if you have a common method that you use all the time, you can then present that data in a common way. And there's obviously advantages to that. But the systems themselves are, can be so different. 
and as you said, they don't. It doesn't always fit. It depends. So how do you? I mean, a great example, right? The red method would be absolutely useless with something that's kind of like an enterprise message bus style architecture. Because mm. what is the the thing you're measuring the request and error, and you know what does it mean to have a duration of a message, right? You know, it, all of these things. You need different philosophies for different systems. I feel. Mm. You know, um, with 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 anything with a queuing system in it, I think you need more of a kind of um, queuing theory based. Kind of like, how long my queues? What's the uh, average wait time in them? These kind of things. Does this make it bespoke for every project then, essentially? I hope not. Hmm. Like, otherwise this gets, you know, this gets really hard. I hope there are some common methodologies that can be applied to multiple systems, you know, maybe share a common architecture. But yeah, I think we're still learning what the best, uh, what the best methodologies are and how best to monitor things. And, you know, of course, as this gets more mature, this also gets more automated. Is there like a, a way to instrument it? Or, or a way to set it up in which there'd be like a red herring to where you would you said you know the red method wouldn't be useful in some case right but then if you set it up and it was reporting you would have this false sense of you know false sense of security have you ever seen that happen to where you think that you've set it up properly and instead you know you've just kind of missed it yeah i mean all the time right you know you'll uh you'll, you'll go to your dashboards customers might be complaining because your alerts haven't caught it you go to your dashboards and everything looks green and you're like well what's going wrong here they're crazy <laughs> How dare they? This is one of the one of the other kind of um, I don't know whether you call it a philosophy or a principle, right? Which is that you should always try and alert. You know, you should always try and measure your performance cl as close as possible to the customer, right? At your edge, you know, maybe the closest you can get is is a load balancer, right? Maybe you can actually instrument your your customer's application on their mobile phone or on their website or on their desktop to like to actually report metrics back to you about your their experience. Right. And as long as you can get as close as possible, then then hopefully your metrics and the data you're using to make decisions starts to to actually be a, a decent proxy for for the user's experience. And that, you know, that gets you down into a whole other avenue of, of what I would still consider to be part of observability, which would be kind of SLO driven alerting and error budget driven alerting and, and you know, alerting on um, symptoms and not on causes and the whole kind of how best to be alerted on when a system goes wrong. I like to think of alerts as invariants, like statements about a system that should be true. You know, it might be the statement might be that this system should have should succeed ninety nine percent of requests, or all requests to this system on ninety nine the ninety ninth percentile of latency for requests to this system over a given window should be less than this. And it's just a series of invariants. And the great thing about that is when they're broken, you get paged to be like, hey, this assumption you made about the system is no longer accurate. It's like a failing test, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. It's, and you know, and and you know, we're we're rambling all over the space here, right? But Amazon had a really good blog post about how, for a sufficiently complicated system, your integration tests and your monitoring effectively, you know, converge into the same thing. That's actually quite interesting, isn't it? So there was a um, we we were having the cooking analogy ten minutes ago, and we kind of veered off of it. But one of the things we said about the observability space is how quickly it's moving, and this has always been something that interests me as to why is the observability space such a rapidly developing set of thoughts and ideas, mm. right? What is what is it intrinsically about observability that makes the the pace and the evolution and and the rate of progress so high? Is it the what it's observing is moving so rapidly? I mean, it also feels like we're in the in the midst of what feels like a tectonic shift in the way the infrastructure is delivered, right? And, you know, so if, if all that changed and that paradigm shifted, then all the tools that you need to figure out what's going on have to change too. I feel like things that we used even five years ago feel ill-equipped in some ways. For sure, right? There's, that's definitely got to be something. But if you look at kind of software architecture as another area, like we don't, we don't have new, fundamentally new ways of architecting software appearing every every week unless i guess if unless you live in the javascript world <laughs> but like you don't you know we you know we have some you know maybe the pace of innovation in software architecture is increasing but we're still only seeing you know large shifts in software architecture from monoliths to microservices to to functions as a service you know at glacial speeds compared to shifts in the observability space i've seen your notes on this before so i sort of don't want to claim that but it's a very good point about the fact that this is data that that's kind of recent. Like this is data that you you know it's it, you want data. That you, you don't really care what happened a year ago, do you? Or even months ago. You really care about what's happening now. You, it's not like you're going to get locked into legacy systems because you've got all your data and you've invested and everything. So is that does that play a part? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Oh, do you? 
Yeah, yeah, funnily enough. Yeah, I got it from your notes. Yeah, <laughs> that's nice. Well, welcome to Big Ten, where it's Tom talking <laughs> and us reading Tom what he wrote. <laughs> I think gravity of data is low in observability systems, right? I, you know, retention of logs tends to not be years, you know, unless it's for kind of audit and, and compliance reasons. Like, you know, if I'm if I want to know what's broken with my system. I often want to look at what happened in the last 10 minutes, hour, couple of hours, and not really, don't really care what happened a few months ago. And this means, yeah, this means like if I want to try a new technology that's going to help me understand what happened in the system, I only have to wait minutes, hours, maybe days before that technology becomes useful mm. if it is useful, right? Like, but, you know, if you go and think, you know, if I'm going to switch from, you know, SQL to NoSQL, I need to architect my application. I need to change how I use the database. I need to learn how to deploy the new databases. I need to migrate my data. You know, it's a six months, year long process to migrate my database technology. Delete all the SQL. There's no SQL allowed in those projects. It means not only SQL now, Matt. We, we, we've, we've grown up beyond the, beyond it just meaning not SQL. Yeah, fair play. Also, like this data is quite small, isn't it? There's lots of it, but often it, it's some num. It's a number. Isn't it like does that right? They, the individual numbers themselves might might only occupy like sixty four bits, but yeah. there's a lot of them. Um, I think we, uh, I think we processed, we ingested three hundred trillion samples into Grafana Cloud in the last twelve months. Oh, is that all? It's a big number. Mm. I think I think it was a trillion, ten to the twelve. Yeah, I think that's a trillion, or, or not. How many commas is that? Twelve. 12 commas. 12 zeros, rather, so four, oh, four oh. commas. Matt, are you actually checking if that's a trillion? I was going to, but I can't find the little up hat button on my keyboard. I've got a new keyboard. <laughs> is it a mechanical keyboard? It is mechanical, yeah, because I want everyone to know when I'm typing. <laughs> it's important. I'm writing a message, not to you, but <laughs> I'm still writing a message. Didn't help. It just says 1E plus 12. Lovely. So, so I think I, I think it's in. I think one of the things that makes this market, this space exciting is that pace. And I think that pace comes from low switching costs, mm. which helps, you know, if I'm, I, I'm a, you know, I, I like to make things, right. I like to make 3d printers. I like to make beer. Occasionally I like to make software and, and it helps to be in a market where I can make a piece of software and a day, a week, a month later, lots of people could use it and get value from it. And that's why I like the observability space. Yeah. Right. That's why honestly, like having, having worked on databases before, I don't like the database space as much because it's so much harder to get people to use your software. Mm. So then do we see the definition of observability continuing to widen and will it eventually just become all-encompassing? I think there's a, yeah, I think there's an argument here that observability as a space is is increasing, right? You know, we're, we're shifting left into other tangential spaces like you know earlier into the development cycle so it's now no longer just about production it's now no longer just about dev test you know how do we incorporate observability best practices into the actual kind of development process you know how do we connect the the user's ide to production instances you know and do kind of live debugging right is that still observability how do we do load testing is that should that be considered part of observability it becomes the everything then right so either that's that's brilliant or it means nothing but then the other side, if it does feel logical to me that that response and then alert response and the troubleshooting, like that firmly is observability in my mind, right? That leading to, and then you just come back to it, right? So it feels like a temporary pull into the real world to then bring you back into the, the data. And you, you also got to mention like, you know, the typical kind of OODA loops, right? I'm not going to say OODA because it sounds silly, <laughs> but like, you know, where your, your observability system is helping you orient right helping you um react but but is it helping you actually kind of change anything so you know to what point do you start to put in the ability to modify the system right the ability to scale things the ability to tweak config like is that observability right? probably not right but you know if you did it all within the same user interface or when you start observing you know changes to your your pipe your ci and cd pipelines yeah, uh, to be honest, I think that I think we will start to see that. I think we, I think it's not just instrumentation, but I do think we're going to start to see developers becoming. I mean, it already happens. Really, it's sort of the DevOps thing, where suddenly the people who wrote the code had to be responsible for running it, and then suddenly we got serious. Like, okay, hang on, we can't just 
this has got to be good. We need actually to instrument this code. We've, we need to understand it properly. Is that your is that your characterization of DevOps? They had to run it, so therefore they took it seriously. I think just when it used to be someone else's problem, like what was that like when you'd write something and then hand it over? You know, I've never. I don't actually know. Like I've never operated in that space to be honest. Like I, well, I guess I have. Right, very early companies. You know, we built shrink wrapped software and sold it to other people who then used it to run their software. You know, worked at Zen and and on Cassandra. And uh, it was horrible, right? Because I didn't know why the software didn't work. Mm. I had no ability to kind of like learn from how the software operated in practice. You know, I, I see DevOps as, as the opposite. Coming from a dev background, it's, it's actually that I want to operate the software so I can learn more, so I can react quicker, so I can build better software. Like I, f- I feel like being on the hook for operating it helps me build software that is easier to operate, which helps everyone. So you're OBSOPS. Ups up, ups off, ups. That's easy for you to say, Matt. Well, we DevOps are our observability platform, right? So the the developers that write Cortex and Loki and Grafana and Tempo run those systems in production for for our users. How can we not talk about SLEs with observability? Like you say that it should be close to where the customer is, and if ultimately we care about how we're delivering it, why isn't why isn't that the underpinning, and that everything works backward from there? There is a school of thought that says like the only thing you should alert on are your 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 SLAs, right? Your SLOs, right? Because an SLA is actually an agreement right. to hit an SLO with penalties if you don't. So really the thing we care about as the engineers is what's the SLO? Yeah. What is our objective? What are we going to measure? How does that proxy to the user's experience? You know, and, and how do we how do we enforce that? Right. And there is a big school of thought that says that should be the only thing you monitor on. And my example being practical here would always be that and disk space. You should always monitor disk space. Right, because it's really, really easy to monitor, and the consequences of filling your disks up is really, really bad. So why would you not? Right. So there should be a little bit of pragmatism. Like I don't like, um, I, I, I particularly dislike any line of reasoning that is you should only do X. There is only one way of doing things. Like, there isn't. Right. Like there is always multiple ways of doing things. Don't use disks. Just use the cloud where disks don't exist. Yeah, you know, how can disks fill up if you don't have any disks? Wait, Matt, you're the person who trains robots that eventually will take over. So. When you hear all this, do you think that like, oh, okay, like this is just something that eventually will become AI, you know, or eventually like this is not something that anyone will have to think about, like the instrumentation will just happen? I've been thinking about that specifically. I think there's space for, you know, like GitHub Copilot, which is the tool that you have in your IDE and it uses kind of all the open source knowledge to guess what you're going to say. Also uses your local context as well. And Sometimes it gets it wrong, but honestly, if you haven't tried it, it is shockingly good at certain tasks. And I feel like instrumenting code, like I don't know, but I feel like there's there's going to be, you could look for patterns of how people are instrumenting their code at least and learn from that and then suggest things. And I don't know if like there's, it's general enough that you'll be able to do that effectively and trust it, or if it's just going to be really helping humans to do that job. But yeah, on the other side, when you've when you've got all this data, there are definitely some tasks where machine learning models or other kind of statistical models for maths will help, I think, um, in various ways. It is quite an exciting space. And, you know, we, we are paying attention to it at Grafana as well. But to devil's advocate on that, why would you train a model to instrument your code when you could just like, you know, go and recompile the code to add the instrumentation at runtime? Yeah, I think it would be more about like, you wouldn't think about instrumentation at this point. It would just, things would be instrumented and, and maybe you'd ask questions of the um, of this platform. And it, if it can't answer them at that point, it would then be able to answer them in the future. It would go and fix it. I, I don't know, something like that I, I could see working, but you're right. It, the thing is, if it's just, if it's so easy to imp- instrument code, and it really is, like I, I write a lot of Go code and, it, you know, if I want to, implement things uh, instrumentation with prometheus for my http endpoints that's a solved problem um and very easy to do so if it's easy it's no point kind of spending that time with the ai to try and do it unless you can kind of fix something at scale or something like that you know and do do something for people on scale but i think it'll be more about teaching people where to instrument and what's worth instrumenting how do you know how do you decide what's worth observing 
Because really, depends on what the problem is, right? Everything's worth observing. Well, but. so why not start from there then? Why not just say, let's observe everything? Right? Why would you not try and gather as much information as possible about the system under, under observation? Yeah, that's a good question. Does it get expensive? How do you justify that? If you, I mean, observe everything, but then are you willing to shell out the money if it was coming out of your own pocket? Well, that's the, and I think, you know, that's personally been a lot of my motivation for systems like Loki. It's like, I want these things to be so cost-effective to run. I, I remember being told, don't say cheap. Cheap in England means cost-effective. Cheap in America means low quality. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So Loki is not cheap. It is cost-effective. Yeah, affordable. It's affordable, yeah. <laughs> affordable. <laughs> does, that, does that mean the same thing? Yeah, affordable. <laughs> affordable is like a step above cheap and a step below cost-effective. It's like a Honda. Or Hyundai? Honda. Honda. Honda or a Hyundai, because one of they're very different cars. The motivation for systems like Loki, not necessarily Loki itself, but was to to make it incredibly cost effective to store logs. Right? We you know, the cheapest way to store anything right now is is cloud storage. So it's like, how do I basically get logs into S3 and make them queryable? And that was the mission behind Loki. Right? Because I you know, I feel very strongly about this. Um, I think logs are my um, my insurance policy, right? What I mean by that is like the you know when I get woken up in the middle of the night, I need to go and reconstruct what happened, like forensically figure out what happened, what led for the system to get into the state that it got into and and and, and break its SLO, right? And you know I need inputs, so I need external kind of you know um, external facing things I can measure, things I can read that will help me infer the internal state of the system. For me, that's logs, right? For Very often, it's logs will help me go, oh, you know, I can go trace through these logs, reconstruct the values of various variables and get to the point where I can see exactly what went wrong. Mm -hmm. And so logs are that insurance policy. They're the, they're the thing that say, I put these in and I know, therefore, sometime in the future when I have to reconstruct this state, I will be able to. And I like paying for insurance policies. It gives me peace of mind. It helps me sleep at night. But when insurance policies are very, very expensive, I start to be like, well, do I really need that? You know, do I really want to pay that much for, for that insurance policy? And that stresses me out, right? And when a procurement person at Company X that I work for comes to me and says, we need you to log less, you're spending too much on logs, that stresses me out because they're getting rid of my insurance policy and they're meaning I can't sleep at night. And so that's why we, I built Loki, right? It was to make it affordable to store huge volumes of logs. And so that when I do get woke up at night, I can be guaranteed I have that debug information I need to figure out what happened. And I think that mindset explains what, what we were trying to do with Loki, right? And what we're trying to do with, with Cortex storage and, and what we're trying to do with Tempo. It's a very similar kind of just make it as simple as possible to store as much as possible. And then that question that you asked earlier of like, how do you decide what's worth observing suddenly becomes a lot easier to decide because the bar, the barrier to entry, like the, the cost um, benefit trade-off just shifted. Mm. Just a side note, Matt, uh, please don't mute because you, you laugh and, and like react and stuff and they'll want to capture that because it's oh, cold. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Can, can we just have 10 minutes of you laughing and reacting? Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say next. <laughs> so in that spirit. You know what they say, Matt? Great minds think alike. Yeah, but they don't, do they? No. We all, famously, all the geniuses in the world thought like nobody else. Yeah. Fools never differ. Yeah, there you go. We got we got a laugh out of Matt. We'll post that into one of the, just into a completely wrong point, like making a really serious point. And Matt, we're just like, <laughs> <laughs> it'll be the same clip of him every time. <laughs> it's like the, Wil the Wilhelm. No, I was going to say the Wilhelm scream. Yeah, yeah Wilhelm laugh. <laughs> Words aren't coming out today. It's just as well we're not recording a, a podcast or anything. I want to talk about traces though, because I feel like two years ago you stood in in Stockholm and you're like, traces are this, traces are that, traces are amazing, traces are this. Nobody uses them. And if you don't do it all, it's kind of useless. So plus two years, are we anywhere Are we anywhere better? Or do we just kind of like nudge each other and be like, yeah, yeah, traces. <laughs> so this is, this is a really interesting point, right, Matt? Because I said earlier, like the great thing about observability is the, the switching cost is super low, right? And that means you can innovate loads. And I think that argument falls down when you start to talk about tracing. Right, because the the cost of adopting tracing is still too high, in my opinion. Right, you know, it's it's there's a lot of there's a lot of work in this area to auto instrument, you know, certain languages and frameworks and so on, so that so that it's cheaper and easier to generate, you know, high quality trace information. But at the end of the day, I think it's quite a hard problem to get 
traces. And, and if there is a hole in the middle of your trace, there's a service in the middle of the, your, your architecture that hasn't been correctly implement, uh, instrumented, then yeah, you know, that trace is broken and, and isn't necessarily going to be as useful as, uh, as it should be. Does Copilot do tracing integrations? I don't believe so. No, I don't think so. But, y- you know, I bet if you start writing something, I bet if, you start, if, if I started instrumenting my code, Copilot would help me do that. Like I bet. So if if there are examples out there of people doing things, so does Copilot like write really buggy code then? Because most code out there that's been trained on, yeah, uh, no, because um, I don't know. Well, yeah, it doesn't though. Uh, I don't know how it doesn't, but um, it's the best version of (laughs) ourselves. Just a set of interns somewhere responding to all the Copilot requests, writing code really quickly. (laughs) I'd be impressed if their interns doing that. But yeah, so on the point of like distributed tracing, Matt, yeah, 100%. Like I feel like we're not quite living up to the promise of observability there at the moment. Yeah. That being said, like the value of tracing is still very, very high. You know, we, we've been on a journey with, with the systems that we run to, to like get them to be very performant. And people have very high expectations of like how quickly their dashboards load and how quickly their queries succeed. And we would not have been able to achieve the latencies that we've achieved without distributed tracing because it's all in the long tail. Right, like the thing that dominates our ability to respond to queries quickly is that one query that took a long time. Right, that shifts everything. Right, we're effectively at the kind of you know many high nines latency. We're just measuring the max, so we're measuring the, the speed of the slowest query. Now, I need to have a trace for that slow query so that I can figure out why was it slow, what went wrong, you know, and then I can start. You can start to design like techniques to avoid it. You know, and it's almost always, well, we should parallelize it more, we should chart it more, we should cache it more, you know, we should retry them when, they, when they're slow, these kind of things. Right? The techniques are relatively well understood, but it's where do I deploy them? You know, to what service, to what path on the query path? Um, and yeah, that's why, like, it is still, unfortunately, in my opinion, like, too much effort to get these high-quality traces. But when you do, that's how you control your long tail. And then once you've got high-quality tracing, so many things become possible. Right, you suddenly have a service graph, right? Because your spans are all interconnected and you can plot. Now you start to find, oh, well, I didn't know this system was talking to this system. You can start to do things like check that your SLOs nest nicely. You know, if you have interdependent systems with different SLOs, you know the dependencies between them. And then you can check that, you know, you, you don't have a tighter SLO than one of the systems you're depending on. Mm. You know, you can do all of these great things. So it is super valuable, but yeah, it's not as easy to adopt as, it, as I'd like it to be yet. And then it quickly kind of falls into even in bigger companies, organizational challenges, right? Like one team saying yes, another team saying no, and another team saying yes on the other side, and then the gap's going to exist, right? I mean, we're in a fortunate position with the software that we work on that the interdependencies are, are minimal, right? And the organizational kind of will is there to have them fully instrumented. But yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it's super tricky, for sure. You'd hope that was the case at Grafana, really, wouldn't you? Imagine if people are like, oh, I can't be bothered to do observability. Not naming names here, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> so when you talk about like all this data now, you're like low-key making it really affordable to do these, keep all this data around, then you've got loads of data. So then this is where another area where AI could, could definitely start helping us as well is looking at that data for us and trying to give us insights. What what other things can we do around that? Like, like how do we how do we deal with that this massive amount of data? Is it just that you go and look only when there's an issue? Should you be always watching dashboards? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, contentious opinion there, right? Obviously not, in my opinion, right? You should not be staring at dashboards in Grafana, you know. And I I honestly think like the you know you go into offices and they've got big screens on the wall, and you know often more often than not it's a Grafana instance on there. I actually think that's like a, a counterexample. I, I don't mean it's very pretty, right? And it, it looks good, but it's just a distraction. Right? I don't want to train. I don't want to pay engineers and I don't want to spend my time staring at a dashboard, trying to figure out if something's broken when I could have written a piece of code that will do that for me. And, and that piece of code is called an alert. It's like the most rudimentary. It's like the most rudimentary form of alerting. Yeah. It's like alerting V1 more or less. It's like, look at that and then use your brain and your visual CPU to tell me and shout out loud when something goes wrong. <laughs> and what, what happens if that person's sick that day? Yeah, well, then the system's not down. Your alerts don't work that day. No, that's, that's dumb, right? Like, um, <laughs> I, I don't think you should stare at dashboards. Right? I think you should use alerts. And I think that's kind of a big kind of 
common mistake, especially with things like Grafana, which are so pretty and so easy to use and so easy to kind of, you know, build these great things and show them and you want to kind of share what you've achieved, um, that you can sometimes over-index on that. Can you also over-index on alerts? Can you end up just too many alerts or... All the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the amount of um, my friends are small. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any friends. I work. Very small friends. <laughs> you 3D print them. <laughs> yeah, no, they're small people. Yeah. Now, the number of my, my colleagues and friends who, um, who just have like pager overload and they've done the right thing. So they don't stare at their dashboards, but then they build an alert for absolutely everything. Mm. Right. And you can always tell when this is happening, when uh, two things, either they're getting paged and they look at the phone and go, ah, it's not important. I'm like, well, why did, why did it just interrupt you? Yeah. <laughs> the other thing is if you get paged for something that is important and you also get 10 other pages for the, for the same problem, right. right? Every layer of the stack is firing. I'm like, well, did you really need all those ones in between? Could you not just have the one at the top? Mm. So like, this is where the whole, I think we alluded to this earlier, right? Pays, you should always alert on, on symptoms, not on causes, mm. right? Except for, except for discs filling up. That's the, uh, the one that the exception that proves the rule. You should always alert on symptoms. Get those symptoms like as close to the user as possible. Use SLOs. And then you get to the really interesting space. Like use, um, use error budgets, right? So allow a system to fail a certain amount, right? The, the example I always give here that kind of highlights it for me, we agreed an SLO with a customer, right? Very early on. Like we're like, uh, you know, 99.9% of writes should succeed within 100 milliseconds. And that's like the system hit that all the time, except for when it didn't. Right. And so we built an alert that said like, if 99.9% of writes don't succeed in less than hundred milliseconds, page me. And I'm like, oh, you've got to start design a window. So we said, okay, make that window five minutes. And we got paged loads. And I'm like, well, you know, loads, like, you know, probably five or six times a month. Mm. I'm like, why are we getting paged? Cause at the end of the month, I go and run you know, a month long query to say how many requests succeeded in less than 100 milliseconds. And the answer was always like, you know, eight nines of requests, like all the requests basically succeeded. Mm. And so effectively I was getting paged when I was within my SLO. And I'm like, well, this is dumb. And Bjorn um, from SoundCloud, Prometheus, Google um, fame, uh, he kind of, you know, explained to me, well, you need, you need an error budget. And you, instead of effectively alerting on breaching your SLO, you know, within a small window, you want to alert on breaching your SLO in increasingly larger windows using some kind of multiple. What you're actually alerting on is the rate at which you're using your error budget. Mm. And that was like, that was mind blown, right? When, when, when he explained this, we, in, we implemented this in our services and our pager load and the pager fatigue that went with that just disappeared. So then it feels crazy to me that observer, we could talk about observability and we talk about the top about like, what, what are the tools and what's this and what's this and this is how you should instrument it. But these are the things that actually feel like it makes it worthwhile. And then everyone has to learn those things independently. Because that to me feels like it should be as baked in as here, drop in your Prometheus and, and start collecting data. I, I agree, right? It's just to that to the extent that it's still, you know, you need a relatively powerful monitoring system to be able to build alerts that look like this. This is not the kind of thing... I mean, I don't want to annoy any of our Graphite users in the audience, but I'm, I wouldn't know how to even start building this kind of alert in Graphite. So... I think we're getting to the point now where we have the level of sophistication that we need in our monitoring tools, in our logging tools, in our tracing tools, even to build these kind of sophisticated next layer of value on top of them. And, and I think error budget based SLO alerts are one of those great examples. How would we even ship that? Not us specifically, but how would you even ship that just that way it was something you kind of got out of the box or at least that you knew that you should have it in the box? There, there are already projects doing this, which is really cool, right? So there's a project called Pyra by Matthias, who's one of the Prometheus maintainers, um, that does this out the box, right? You, you configure it with your, with your SLOs, and it basically generates these really high-quality alerts. There's another project called Sloth, which is an awesome name, S-L-O-T-H, hmm. um, by a chap called Javier. I was just talking to him today, actually. And, and again, he will, you know, you give him a definition, or his, his taller definition, and it will generate out dashboards and alerts for these. Does it do it really slowly? Because I'd be disappointed if that was fast. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you could put it in sloth mode is that the the opposite of plaid right yeah exactly right okay there's, there's only one thing slower than slow huh. slow up sloth sorry i was really slow to get that that's all right yeah sloth ops sloth ops slow ops. <laughs> we should coin slow ops slow ops which is slo ops slow ops well actually i've been working on a project to um we we do these internally and we've generalized you know built functions to generate these alerts and dashboards 
And we use a language called JSONIT to do it. So I've been working on a project that I'm probably going to open source by the time this comes out called JSLONIT. It's J-S-L-O on it. Mm. Yeah. And this is why we don't let Tom name things. <laughs> it also occurs to me that slow ops, if you write it out, is sloops. <laughs> That's funnier. <laughs> I, I think we should have um, SLOs as a service or slow ass. <laughs> that also means a different thing depending on which country you're in. It's a different podcast. So, so there's like we've just like really done a meander through um, like some of the observability space. You know, we didn't really talk about open telemetry. We haven't talked about eBPF. We haven't talked about continuous profiling. Something I'm really excited about. Like there are so many areas, and this is what why I'm so excited about observability and why I'm excited to be doing this blog. Uh, this blog. This is not a blog, is it? No, don't think so. Yes. And are we writing right now? Are we talking? Is this what it feels like? Is this real life? <laughs> this is inside a blog. <laughs> but this is why I'm so excited to be doing this podcast, right? Because like, I'm hoping to invite people like Javier, people from the other tools and technologies that we've discussed onto the, the podcast to really talk about what makes them different, what makes them exciting, what, you know, why we should be using them and, and how they're going to make a developer's life easier. Yeah, I love. I, I'm excited to have those conversations too. I love the fact that this podcast isn't going to be um, just selling Grafana tools. It's not a product. Like, isn't going to be selling Grafana tools at all, Matt? Like, not just. Yeah, well, I, we talk about them, of course, because they're relevant. But yeah, I think that's one of the, one of the things I like about it. So, yeah, you're right. There's lots of other things. Are there other things in the future of observability that are worth chatting about? Like, pick one of those things, maybe. Tell us what are you excited about. I know Frederick's talking uh, on a lot of podcasts at the moment about Polar Signals, his new company that's that's investing a lot in continuous profiling and has an open source project around that. So I'd love to invite him on. Um, I think continuous profiling is something I'm really excited about because it's not going to suffer the same challenges that distributed tracing has. Right? It's going to be much lower barrier to entry, much easier to get started with, and hopefully much shorter kind of time to value, time to insight. Should we do? Um, should we? Should we describe uh, the dashboard of the week? Oh, this is uh, our new regular section that Tom came up with for a podcast. <laughs> Remember, this is an audio-only podcast. It's time for Dashboard of the Week. In this segment, Tom Wilkie, who is, as far as I can tell, a grown-up professional man, is now going to describe his favorite dashboard <laughs> on a podcast. <laughs> Ouch. What's your favorite one this week? Which, which dashboards caught your eye this week, Tom? <laughs> well, I want to... I... I'm not happy with that intro. I can say. No, I love it. I think, <laughs> oh, you liked it. Okay. I think we should play that intro back every week as we do dashboard of the week. <laughs> I wanted the... the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There we go. That sound means uh, we could use that when we've run out of time. Yeah. The uh, the dashboard of the week I'd like to talk about this week is the the SLOs dashboard. Mm-hmm. What is that? Um, how do how do I can I share a screen on this? Oh, I can. You can share a screen, but genuinely, this is a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> do, we should remember that. We really it's... no no look here. You go. I've shared my screen. So this is the one I wanted to, uh, to share. What what do we think? It's pretty, isn't it? I actually think it is very pretty. It's very green. Well, that's because it's our SLOs. But I really like the use of structure and color and the fonts. Yeah, no, fair fair play, Matt. What do you what do you like about this dashboard? Me, Matt. Yeah, yeah, Matt, Matt too. I like that. I could see a lot without having to scroll. <laughs> I like scrolling, so I like the fact that you can scroll on this. I love scrolling because it feels like I'm going somewhere. And uh, uh, so, yeah, I'm down for this. I'm all over this one. The other thing I really like about this dashboard is how you can um, you can click on it and it takes you to other dashboards. Oh, yeah. That's a sort of hyperlink technology yeah. that you've got. Yeah, patented, I think. Yeah. And uh, in particular, this SLO is my favorite SLO. You're at 105% of your predictions. Yeah, this is also the service that Matt's responsible for. You're doing very well if you're 105%. You know, it's better than good, isn't it? I mean, talk about exceeding expectations. When your (laughs) SLO goes above, you know, it's not performance review period, so I'm wasting my breath. But let's remember this for then. Okay, and that was Dashboard of the Week. (laughs) That definitely needs its own uh, theme tune, doesn't it? (laughs) There might be its own podcast. How do I I stop sharing it? Yeah, it'll be a spin-off. A Netflix special, that. So what do we, where do we get? We got to observability is easy, it's modern, it's rapidly moving, you should do it. I think it's exciting. Right? I think it's a good time to be a software engineer, both with all the tools that are being built for you and being a software engineer building those tools. 
I think that's the one thing that we missed here. And maybe it's because we're talking to people who are doing it. But I think what we missed is like the point of it is to, to not have to spend as much time fixing stuff, right? And to know when to fix things and then only spend time fixing it when it's actually down, right? It's, I guess it's all what in Tom, in your mind, like what's it in pursuit of? It's pursuit of more efficiently address. I don't know. The thing I think a lot of people miss is like, yeah, if you're, if you're meeting your SLO, exceeding your SLO, you've got room to move. You've got room to maneuver, right? Should you be maybe taking a few more risks? Should you be launching more often? Should you be, I'm not going to say do less testing, but should you like, you know, what could you do to move faster as a team, to move faster as a business? Oh, I like that. Because then basically you're saying instead of it just being a defense mechanism and like holding the line, it actually shows you where you can push harder. Exactly. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that is cool. It's so true about testing. You can definitely write too many tests and they stop being useful and same as bad alerts. You ignore them or delete them or whatever. I like that too. The positive side of of what we get from this. Because, yeah, it's not all negative, is it? Just because things do go wrong. Now we need to think of a way of closing the podcast because this could just go on for hours. Well, I can do an outro. Do you you just play the music backwards? (laughs) Does it say Hail Satan if you do that? (laughs) Paul is dead. Or maybe, Tom, you could do the... (laughs) That's the sound that we've run out of time. And that sound tells us that we've run out of time for today. But what a great conversation. Thank you so much. I learned a lot. I hope our listeners did too. You know, we we talked about everything there, didn't we? We went from, um, I think we started at sources, uh, bechamel, uh, velouté, tomato, etc. Oh, now you know them. Now you've Googled them. Exactly. It's It's a learning podcast. Um, the use method, utilization, saturation, errors, uh, the red method, Tom, which stands for? Rate, errors, and uh, duration. Correct. You did get it wrong earlier, so. <laughs> I'm allowed to. Yeah. You invented it, mate. So thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time on Grafana's Big Tent. Big Tent.